0: All right, hello and welcome to RealCom's third installment in the Smart Buildings Bootcamp Series for 2022. I'm Chuck Niswanger, President of NiceNets Consulting, sitting in for RealCom's Sarah Bemperin as host of today's webinar, Smart Building Case Studies. In case you missed the first two webinars in this series, you can go to realcom.com and look under past webinars to view their recordings. Before we get started, let me go over a few housekeeping items that will help you have a great webinar experience. First of all, thank you to all of our live attendees. We do encourage you to use the Q&A box at the bottom left of your screen to submit questions or comments. We'll try to get to all those questions, but if we don't answer them during the webinar, we'll do our best to get to you once the event has concluded. In the handout section, you'll find today's presentation along with ones from previous webinars in the Smart Bootcamp series. And for the best webinar experience, We'll recommend uh, closing out any other internet applications, especially streaming videos. If you're experiencing any technical issues like connectivity, sound, or video quality, the best thing to do is disconnect and click on the webinar link again. You can also email Ian Thompson, that's i thompson at realcom.com for more help, but don't worry, it's all being recorded, so you won't have to miss any of the information that we were about to cover, and you'll receive a recording link Uh, in just a few days so don't worry and today's uh, educational webinar is sponsored by Bluetooth and they offer a connected world free from wires where everything and everyone that wants to connect should be able to do so in a simple secure and wireless way. Clockwork Analytics is revolutionizing the built environment equipping clients with cutting-edge technology to enhance their operations and their building performance. And Spot On Network offers managed Wi-Fi, cell boost, distributed antenna systems, RF and cellular systems, and more. They are all about wireless. And we thank all these sponsors for helping us out at RealCom. And when you're thinking about IoT devices, data analytics, or wire technologies, I do recommend including these companies in your vendor evaluation process. Our moderator today is Donnie Walker. He leads the Newcomb Boyd's Intelligent Building System Group and has over 20 years of engineering, project management, communications, security, and integrated building automation systems experience. Donnie, welcome to the webinar, and it's all yours. All right. Thanks, Chuck. And uh,
1: welcome, everybody. Um, So I'm Donnie Walker with Newcomb and Boyd, and uh, we are a um, multidisciplinary consulting and engineering firm that specializes in smart buildings. Um, And as Chuck had said, I lead our uh, intelligent buildings group within Newcomb and Boyd. Um, And we have a team of people that um, design all of the aspects of smart building that um, really provide the consulting and, um, you know, um, somewhat um, handholding of walking our clients through the process. And so a lot of times we serve as the subject matter expert. you know, for the owner's organization to help them with uh, projects that may be doing uh, new technologies that they have not experienced. Um, a lot like a lot of the um, projects that are gonna be presented in the case study today. Um, this um, picture that we have on the screen here is from the Living Building, uh, which is a Living Building certified project at Georgia Tech. And uh, that is a project that um, was really uh, new and innovative for Georgia Tech to be able to achieve Living Building status. Um, and we our team you know, along with all of the uh, engineering disciplines, provided the um the technology systems that help deliver that um, smart building and and help to achieve the uh, living building status uh, we're uh, going to be getting started off today uh with uh, gary Mullaney. Uh, he's with uh, Kaiser Permanente, and um Gary is a senior energy consultant at Kaiser Permanente where he supports affordability and environmental stewardship goals. He works on a wide range of projects in energy and water management from distributed energy resource deployments to efficiency and conservation efforts across the country. So uh, Gary, welcome.
2: All right, thanks Donnie. Um, Hi everybody, Um, thank you for having me. I'm also calling in from rainy Georgia, so uh, let me get started. All right. Uh, so let me just start with a quick overview of Kaiser Permanente. Uh, for those that aren't familiar, uh, Kaiser Permanente is a uh, large integrated healthcare system um, that operates across eight states and the uh, District of Columbia. We've got a pretty extensive portfolio. And since we're we're talking smart buildings, um, we've got 39 hospitals and over 700 medical office buildings and, and other facilities. So we've got a pretty good-sized portfolio here in the U.S. Um, so let me dive into our fault detection diagnostic program journey. So the journey actually started before I joined the team, but um, I'm pretty well versed in our history and kind of how we got here. So we started with a couple pilots back in 2014 and really 2015 is where we started in earnest. We did uh, some national pilots. We did a competitive uh, request for proposal uh, for a FDD tool. We selected Clockworks Analytics um, and awarded them an MSA. And from there, we looked at the pilots and we really got to the point where we had to make a decision. Um, So we did this pilot. We had to decide, do we want to scale it or not at this point? Uh, We had some really impressive results from these uh, initial pilot sites, which were three hospitals in California and Oregon and then one meg office building in Colorado. Um, So we decided to go ahead and scale. However, we ran into a little bit of... uh, this looks like a straight line, but at the end of the day, uh, mo- as most journeys are, they're not—they're not straight and they're not—they're uh, uh, not smooth paths. So we actually initially tried to go with a national rollout and national funding, and unfortunately, that did not work. Um, however, we still—we uh, still carried on and we still decided to scale the program. We just had to do it a little bit more. we uh, Had to be a little bit more creative. So one th- one thing we did that was really essential was we made fault detection diagnostics a requirement in our capital program to support our commissioning Um, so we got really good buy-in from our capital projects teams and our commissioning team in particular that set all of our design standards and they really saw this as uh, a great tool to to help things out so that for us it ended up working as a great way of of getting the the tool uh, deployed at our facility so it was a a good funding mechanism but we also had to work with our local teams and really kind of sell the program and the idea and the technology medical center by medical center region by region Uh, and we were successful may have taken longer than we initially predicted but um, we were able to to scale and you can see here on the bottom of there uh, that's kind of what the growth trajectory looked like Um, and on the top where we got picked up some awards along the way Um, the the energy to chair uh, energy to care champion award was a pretty big uh, in the Healthcare facility space, uh, is uh, our main area, and so our Zion Medical Center was one of these national pilots, and so they had a lot of success with the tool. And then later we got one for really our portfolio success through uh, DOE, um, their smart smart building analytics or smart energy energy analytics uh, program. Uh, so that was that was really nice to to see that uh, award along the way. And so this brings us up to where we are today, uh, pretty pretty large scale, and I'll talk a little bit later about kind of what what the next steps are. All right, so what's our operating model? Um, Because you've got the technology. um, This is kind of what what I have stated as our vision statement, uh, which is Kaiser Permanente employees and partners that I I wanna highlight that because this isn't just, we're using, uh, external folks are using the tool as well. It's not just Kaiser uh, employees using it, but we have external partners that use it. So it's a very collaborative uh and they the key here is fully engaged in leveraging uh fault detection and diagnostics and a continuous improvement process to deliver um a multifaceted value across enterprise and facility life cycle are we there yet not not yet, but we have made great stock, great strides and we're we're constantly trying to improve so a couple other things we we like I said with the funding it, we we couldn't get a centralized funding so we had to had to take a decentralized approach and we still our facility operations are still pretty de- decentralized, so this program is also while we manage it at centrally, try to um, provide the, the the tools and the guidance and the support out of central uh, from a central hub. Ultimately, the work gets done very locally. So we do rely on local champions at each of these campuses that are getting in there and using the tool and driving savings and impact in their facilities. Um, on the bottom here, this uh, this sort of formula. This is what we call our, um, we've dubbed our success formula. So we've got onboards. onboard, that's the growing, you got to get facilities in there. The tool needs to do the analytics and then we need to uh, engage. And that third block is really the most important. A lot of people like to jump to impact. They want us to say, show me the money, but without the engagement and the rest of the steps, you're not going to get there. So that's kind of the way I've often thought about the program. And I think of it as those are the levers we can pull to get more impact. Um, And on the right here, this is we talk about that continuous improvement process. That's what we see, it's, it's this complementary effort between what Clockworks is doing, what their tool is automatically doing, and then what our folks need to do with the tool. Um, and that's, that's that monitoring-based commissioning approach. So that's that's our model. We'll jump into what our impact has been. And I know this is a bit of a busy slide and a lot of numbers, so let me walk through it here. Um, there's no single or easy way to always quantify this across the board and especially when you deploy the tool over the course of as you can see many many years we we're deploying it it wasn't deployed in phases it was deployed kind of we're constantly bringing on new buildings and they're all at different stages of adoption so we often have to look at kind of building group by building group which is this first one kind of the impact by campus and so these are the campuses or regions that have um, and just give you a sense of what their scale is, This is how many square feet they have monitor, when they went live. So a wide ranging of dates anywhere from last year to back, back to 2014, and kind of what their first year cost was. So that's both the upfront onboarding cost plus the first year subscription cost. And I've got the annual cost, so that's that annual subscription, and then what the avoided cost is. Um, so that's what savings actually, annual savings that they have uh, achieved. Uh, over time, so you can see how all of these sites have really not only broken even but done really well for themselves um, at the bottom here, this is if you look at we we kind of collectively looked at all of the sites and we looked at when did they go live, so when do they come up on the platform and the goal is that I'd like to see all of our building groups by the time they've been up and running for two years, I'd like them to hit that break even where they have captured enough savings to cover that full first year cost um and so we're very close to that we're, we're We're inching closer. There are a couple of sites probably just holding us back where we've had lower adoption. Uh, On the right, this is just a snapshot of what we've done in the most uh, recent year. And so that task data, when we capture it through Clockworks, that's what feeds into these uh, avoided costs. But what I'd also like to really talk about, and I know Alex will talk a little bit more about it later, is um, beyond dollars uh, and beyond energy. And while energy is uh, very important, I think, to truly see the impact and the value of a program like this is you got to look beyond just energy. And so what this chart here shows, and this was for one of our, um, I think it was our Renton campus, it's an admin campus of four buildings up in Washington. Um, this top line is what the um, comfort and maintenance scores of that building was, and then it dropped off perceptively as the team engaged. So the team got in there and really focused for about three weeks on trying to tackle every diagnostic that clockworks had thrown at them. And they really, you can see a pretty significant drop off in those scores, which meant a real improvement in, I shouldn't call these scores, these are actually, these are the the faults, the quantification, the faults and priority. Uh, So we saw a real improvement in comfort and maintenance um, with some focused effort and they kept it down over time here. So we're going to do more looking at that. That's something that part of it is just it's hard to quantify. You've got to have the right, you've got to be collecting the right data in order to translate the work done through your program into uh, impact. And so we, we've got some changes that have happened. We're, we're hoping in the next few years we should be able to, to quantify better the impact beyond just um, energy and dollars and cents. All right. So what's next? Um, obviously, the first two bullets. We're going to continue to drive engagement, drive in, impact. So that I was. I, I focus less on impact. Impact is that kind of lagging indicator, and instead I focus on, on really driving engagement. We track, we track logins, we track number of tasks being created. So we're looking for those leading indicators to, to, to see where our teams are engaged, and if they're not engaged, if we're we're reaching out to see if they need training, see if they need assistance, understand what the barriers are to engagement. Um, and obviously we're continuing to grow. The program is almost on autopilot from a growth standpoint, but we're looking to, at this point, really to understand where where are remaining gaps? What medical centers have we not got onboarded yet? Um, and why haven't they got there? And then the next two are really another area where I focus on, um, this is is integration. In order for this program to really achieve its maturity and achieve its goals, we really need to get some integration. In place, so that's uh, I've got two or three initiatives this year to try to increase our integration into our other tools, like our um, CMMS. Um, and then finally, maturity, like I already talked about, we really want to explore more on maintenance use cases, how we can use Clockworks to help drive our maintenance program, which is a little outside of my um, my job description, but I'm trying to reach across the aisle and get other folks to to buy into it. So, all right, uh, Donnie yeah Jerry, that's,
1: that's, that's very uh, interesting and um you know definitely commend you for how far along you guys are on the adoption scale um, and you know it's something that we see as organizations get started um, you know they'll, they'll uh, try uh, different platforms but it's really that um, adoption uh, into your operational aspects that makes it a success or not um, you know sometimes you can have a really great Platform, but if the team isn't utilizing it, you're not going to see the uh, the ROI there. So when you are, um, you know, you, you said that you define a, a local champion for each site. So what what kind of people are you looking for for that local champion, and how do you how do you really define their role in implementing this and making it a success?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. We look for you got to have the right skills from uh, you got to understand HVAC systems well. You got to understand building management systems. So usually we're trying to find that whoever is that BMS savvy, HVAC savvy guy on the on the staff. Um, we've had some cases where we've had some uh, former BMS techs that got brought over to our team and then those are often the guys we target. Uh, but we're also looking for the folks that are, um, they're gonna take the initiative, they're self starters, they work well with others. Um, one of the things we've tried to move away from is just focusing on the champions and really trying to help people understand this is a team sport, it's a team effort. Um, Sometimes we can be really successful with one champion, but if that champion leaves, retires, something happens, then you kind of back at square one. But if you have a team approach, you can really bring that collective brain power to it. And that one person, there's no way that one person can possibly do all the work that's going to be identified when you turn these systems on. Your HVAC systems have so many, there's so many faults that are going to pop up that one person, they could spend their entire rest of their career just trying to resolve all of those issues. But if you take a team approach, then that person can focus on the front end work, the diagnostic work, or looking at the diagnostics and taking the, the harder stuff or the stuff on the BMS, and then they can push out the rest. Um, hey, there's a stuck damper out there. There's a sensor that needs to get replaced to the rest of the team. That's where the integration comes in, what we're trying to work on right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, That overall team, it's really more of a, you know, a methodology school of thought of continuous commissioning um, to have everyone involved in that. So how does that team uh, balance out, um, you know, really addressing issues that are discovered through clockworks um, versus kind of your normal task of preventative maintenance?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. That's actually one of the reasons we want to dig into the maintenance side to see if there's a way to better, 'Cause I think quite often what's happened is energy work gets seen as, hey, that's energy work, it's on the side. It's it's always kind of seen as initiative work. So it's not core to what they have to do every day. There's some teams that see it a little different, but a lot of teams I, I feel like see energy um as kind of an initiative. They like it, but as soon as other things come up, it always kind of goes to the side. That's why I want to get it this program tied more into maintenance. So it's seen as, hey, we might not maybe we can do our preventive maintenance. Have a different strategies, smarter strategies that incorporate these analytics instead of just doing the same strategies that have been going on for 50 years. Not that that if it isn't broken, but there there's probably some smarter ways we can we can do the work. So, uh, sure, yeah, those
1: those are you know typically set up by you know the the law of averages of you know when something needs to be done. So with more data, you can really redefine those averages of of when things really need to be done.
2: Or we just don't do the maintenance. Sensors are a great example. I don't think people are out there doing sensor maintenance and what are we doing pouring more and more sensors into our buildings um, but with tools like fdd you can pick those up and you can just address them um, or at least yeah and and they're probably run to failure but at least you'll know that they're broken quite often otherwise you don't find out they're broken until there's a a member complaining that something's too hot or too cold or you're not getting air there's some other issues so if you can get ahead of those then that's going to really help you out
1: That's a great point. Uh, So we've got a question from the audience here. Uh, Is your FDD able to detect degradation in the large motors that can fail at any time?
2: That's a good question. I might, I might defer that to Alex in a later session. So he's going to talk more about specifically about clockworks and he can probably get into that. I, I, I think if it's within the H, uh, the FD, within the HVAC system it's probably going to get picked up, but, uh, I don't have a, Good answer to that one. So
1: okay, yeah, we'll 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 quiz Alex on that one later. Um, And then another question is, how are uh, savings estimated? Uh, The change in utility bills are using savings calculations or IPM uh, MVP standard. And so you know, really kind of looking at is is it something that you're um, that you're modeling, or is it you know kind of looking at meter data this versus this? How do you calculate that?
2: Yeah, again, I'll I'll say Alex will be able to explain it better than I can, but I know they do. A, there's a regression model around um, identifying the savings, so we do rely primarily. My first point of contact is using the Clockworks data and their tasks. So when you identify a diagnostic um, and you escalate it to a task, think work order, that will then tell you, if there was an energy impact. They'll then calculate what the ener, uh, uh the annual energy savings would be or the avoided costs um so i think of it as like this is how much energy would would have been wasted um and so that is a pretty conservative we've had our engineers take a look at it and they use basic engineering calculations and they've said if anything it's a pretty conservative approach so we've used that because that helps you can look at eui but the problem with eui is that you don't you could have done something at some other measure and it's hard to differentiate and, and create attribution so i've focused on the task i then also like to try to come back and hopefully if there's been great task um activity we've been closing a lot of tasks seeing a lot of great work in clockworks then it should then reflect in the UI as well um that's that doesn't right. always happen and that's where you gotta dig in and understand did some something else happen in some other system that's kind of killing your savings
1: uh, yeah that that energy that avoidance can be really difficult to uh to define because you can end up with um you know a uh if if you have a really poor performing building and you improve that a lot, you show a lot of energy uh, avoidance. Whereas if you're, you know, kind of maintaining it off the start, implement these systems, you're, you're kind of keeping it from getting to that point, which is, is great. And and it is, it's still money, uh, you know, money saved, money earned, but um, hard to define because, because it never got to that point where you really saw what, how bad the building could operate.
2: Yeah. And I also see a lot of, Teams will have a hard time understanding that. Say maybe four years down the line. So you had some great savings in year one, and four years down the line, maybe you you're not still seeing savings, but you haven't gone back. They don't really think that as well. That's if you didn't have the tool, you're probably going to regress back. Maybe not all the way, but there's no way you can monitor your system as well without that extra layer of analytics on top, um, unless you just throw additional manpower. But that's more cost. So there's trade-offs there. So you got to there's probably you got to be having those discussions with the bean counters and making sure they understand that like you're not going to keep saying more you but you have to understand that keeping it low that is still a feat and that's a success in itself and then you've got to do additional measures to continue to drive additional savings
1: absolutely well thanks Gary uh that was very informative and we'll uh, we'll pick back up on some of this in the uh in the Q&A of course Welcome. all right thank you all right uh next we have um eric Heron. Uh eric is the managing director of development and construction for stream austin and during his career eric has designed and overseen the design and construction from land acquisition through occupancy over 15 million square feet of space with work valued at over 750 million eric welcome
3: hello thanks uh, thanks for having me guys i appreciate it um, I've been uh, now able, this is I think the third event I've done with RealCom, I'm excited to be involved. So thanks for having me. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about our project in a very short amount of time. I'm going to uh, give you insight into kind of what we're doing. Uh, I'm not the technical guy, I'm I'm a I'm a reformed architect turned developer, but but um, I'll tell you a little bit about the project we're doing in Austin here, and then uh, we'll take questions at the end. I'll, I'll get through it as quick as I can. Um, my first slide here is uh, is uh, River South is a um, project in Austin. Um, it's a JV between Stream and quadrille. Um, can you go to the slides? I don't think I have. Okay. Uh, so uh, it is. This is the building. Um, give you a little overview of the project. It is. Um, again uh is a project that is kind of the first building in the south central waterfront district which is an area of austin just to the south of the river it's an exp- it's an expansion of the cbd south of the river uh, most the the, the the southern line of the cbd has always been what we call ladybird lake which is which is really uh the, the dammed up colorado river um and so we sit uh in kind of an, an interesting location with great views of downtown. We're also uh, on the park system, um, 13 miles of hike and bike trails, uh, as well as connected to Auditorium Shores, which is where we have a lot of music festivals, uh, food festivals, those kind of things. So um, very well situated. Um, We're also connected very close to uh, the South Central, uh, South Congress Entertainment District, which uh, is kind of the entertainment district of Austin, uh, kind of the cool and hip area of of Austin. uh, going forward here, uh, the breakdown of the building: um, we're a 372,000-foot building, 350,000 foot of office uh, in in 10 stories above a uh, five-story garage that's above the retail level, and then we have five levels of below-grade parking, so a total of 800 parking spaces, um, you know, almost 60 feet under the ground with uh, with parking. Um, we also have a rooftop park um, on top of the garage. Uh, you can kind of see that kind of in the yellow area there, as well as a uh, what we call the Jewel Box Fitness Center and a 15th floor amenity lounge, uh, which become, basically you know serves kind of coffee uh, during the day and then becomes a lounge for uh, as a tenant amenity uh, in the evenings. Pretty excited. We were excited to win the the 2021 Digi Award for the most intelligent office building. Um, As I got into this uh, and give you a little history here, um, Quadreel, you guys, they're they're regular participants. uh, Thano and and Bill Massey, uh, Thano Lambrinos and Bill Massey with with Quadreel came to us after we actually started construction on our building. Uh, It's about three years ago and said, uh, we want you guys to consider, uh, making this a smart building. And, and, uh, we didn't know much, you know, at the time I, I knew very little about, you know, what, what that meant, um, through a lot of education on their, on their, on their part, um, teaching our team, um, we bought in, um, line and Sinker. We were, we, we decided to, to, uh, go after this hard and make it the smartest building we could. Um, we have, um, we have implemented a lot of things I'm going to talk about here in a minute, um, and and frankly, you know, my question to them was just, hey, take me to one of these buildings, I can, I can see see what we're doing here, and and the answer is there's there's not another one like it. Um, we believe we're the smartest building in in Austin for sure, definitely Texas, and and likely in the U.S. Uh, as a as a multi-tenant office building, which is really kind of a differentiator. There's a lot of people that are doing this and. In universities, there's a lot of people that are doing this in end user buildings or they're doing pieces of it, maybe even to a to a larger extent than we are. But um just putting it all together in a multi-tenant um, you know, leased spec office building, um, it doesn't happen a lot. So we've learned a lot about that process. So um here's the, these are the strategies for for why we why we did this. Um reduce operational costs. Reduce energy cost consumption and carbon footprint uh, were lead gold. Enable, enable healthy spaces, so wellness in general. This is one that we started this all before COVID, and uh, it's really been a, a perfect um, perfect add-on to, to, to kind of uh, attack some of these COVID issues. Optimize space management and utilization. enhance the experience of, of the users of the building. Um Most notably, the tenants uh, improve you know operational efficiency and employee uh, productivity for the people that work in the building. I'm gonna spend most of my time my remaining time on this on this slide this This is just basically going through our use cases that we've implemented uh, and are still in the process uh, one thing I want to note is we're still in the process of implementation of this building. Uh, we're about to be delivered the shell building from, from our GC, and uh, we will, um, and we're starting right now to do uh, the integration of all these systems. So we started with the, the left column of this, of this page, and uh, those these are the things that are, that are kind of the basis for the rest of them. Uh, converged operating system, so GPON, um, we call this the spine of the building. I call this the spine of the building, and this is how this is the system that we use to to basically make sure that all the systems um, to the right can talk to one another. Uh, the UUI or the, the uh, building operating system uh, we use uh, um, Code Labs as our operating system. Um, they uh, but basically this is the, the brain. So we have the spinal cord with the with the operator, the Gpon and then and then the UUI or the operating system for the building is the brain. Those two things, you can't do the rest of it without it. Um, tenant sub metering. Uh, we very quickly understood in a multi-tenant building. So this is where we differ from from maybe a, a building where you can determine uh, that the whole building is going to be smart. Um, we can't do that because we're a multi-tenant building. We're, we're leasing this to tenants that have the right to 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 buy in or not buy into sub metering. Uh, or sorry, buy into smart building, and so. Uh, Submetering is, is, is our, our means to to allow that and make it make it make sense for them. So by submetering tenants, we're giving tenants an actual usage of their electrical bill that includes their 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 appropriate pieces of mechanical loads and those kind of things. So when they call on air, um they're charged for it uh, appropriately. And so uh we did a very intense submetering um plan. Uh mobile app for tenant services. So this is about the tenant experience, but uh we have a river south app. Uh, that will um, allow tenants to do a lot of things and take advantage of a lot of the, of the other columns here. Operationalized BIM, so this is a, uh, a digital twin of the building for use in operation of the building uh, to test, uh, you know, concepts um, before they go live in the building. Uh, dock and driveway management uh, important in this building. We have a driveway under the building where our docks are, and so we manage those through our, through our uh, our smart building platform work order integration so as a multi-tenant we, we have we are responsible for for helping tenants with any issues they have and so uh through the app they can they can order uh work make work orders uh for our team to attack uh intelligent integrated parking so uh one of the things you know that kind of figured in uh and i'll, I'll give this quick introduction i'm gonna i'm gonna just kind of explain kind of a day in the life uh at river south as a tenant but uh i arrive to the building um in my car it sees my license plate it, it opens the gate without knowing without me having to touch anything or pull out a card or or uh or anything like that or pay so it opens the gate and it notifies the building the brains that uh i'm here it might tell my receptionist that uh i've arrived for the day uh it might start cooling my office down to the to the uh correct temperature set my lights right it might send me a text and says hey um you normally get coffee as you come through the lobby? Do you want your normal coffee? And you say yes, and it's there. It may order the elevators for you. It knows it takes three minutes about where you park, and uh, in three minutes, uh, it, the elevator's waiting for you without you having to press a button. Uh, and then throughout the day, um, anything you want to do, if you want to order lunch, if you want to uh, schedule yourself for a fitness class, all those things are possible through the tenant app. So that's kind of a day in the life, but it starts with the integrated parking. Um we we uh, green you know it's a lead gold building rainwater and condensate capture on the site um, we keep track of all that through the uh, the building operating system occupancy data collection um, it's really the most important piece of the puzzle uh, I I believe that there's the most, the best most important data that we collect. Is through the occupancy data collection. So uh, these are micro motion sensors that, that track. Uh, they can count actual people instead of just knowing that people are in a space. It you can tell me exactly how many people are in a space. Um, these can be used for emergency response. These can be used for space utilization. Um, you know, to, knowing how people are using our building is is critical data. Uh, cleaning scheduling. If why clean? Why do we clean spaces that haven't been used during a day? Intelligent EV charging. Uh, intelligence security, digital kiosk, guest services, occupancy comfort. Um, we're doing I, IAQ sensors throughout the building that will monitor, uh, I think it's 15 different uh, points, including temperature, lighting, sound, particulates, carbon dioxide that we can use to, mo- to make those systems, uh, the building systems work differently. Um, for example, bring in more outside air. Um, bike valet, which is connected to the student, to the, to the tenant app smart lockers, leak detection throughout the building required for tenants uh, and then smart bathroom amenities. Uh, So things like changing the toilet paper roll, it sounds so simple, but, uh, but changing it when it's actually empty and not, not just when it's scheduled to be done. So uh, sorry, I've breezed through a lot of information there. Um, uh, There's a lot, lot to it. I'm happy to answer any questions, Donnie.
1: Yeah. Thanks. Uh, that, that, is, uh, that is a lot that you've got that you're offering there. And I agree with you. It, it is very unique in the multi-tenant office space. You, you see a lot of those types of initiatives in a, in a single tenant office where they're trying to really have, you know, the, the best headquarters workspace. Um, but, you know, a lot of people are moving into, you know, three floors in a building like yours, five floors in a building like yours, and they, they're wanting to um, provide those types of things for their employees. Um, And so, you know, offering that as the base building as a really, uh, as an amenity, um, gives them the ability to move into your building and not have to initiate that type of effort, which I think is very valuable. Um, Are you you writing any standards into your design requirements for tenants to say, you know, we've got this great opportunity for you to really, you know, tie in and buy into what we're doing here. But, you know, when you fit out your space, there's some things you're gonna to need to do to make your space as um, you know integratable as possible to what we've already achieved.
3: Absolutely, it's, it's, it's become a sales pitch um, where we're basically having to kind of explain to them, you know, talk about energy savings that they can expect. Um, they're gonna gain, they're gonna get some energy savings just in, in, in the common spaces of the building and the things we've done to make it a more inefficient building. But uh, actually, getting them to buy into extending those services into their space—that's the piece that we kind of have to sell them on. Um, that's why we talked about that, that um, sub-metering of tenants, down to so we know exactly what their uses are. It's been a—it's a tough, tough, tough task to, to do when you're when you're talking about just for example all the HVAC systems, and you're trying to take those systems and and um, and monitor, you know, exactly who calls for air where. These are, these are systems that are shared amongst all the tenants and, and the common spaces as well. And so you have to kind of use metering to to break up those areas and actually give people actual bills because if you can't promise that there's gonna be a payback, it's hard to get them to buy into a, what we think is a two to 3% increase in their build outs to, to implement the you know, a full smart building space um, within, you know, for their tenant space. So uh, it, it's a sales pitch um, so far in it's at River South. We're about 70% leased and we've seen about um, 50 to 60% implementation. So uh, okay. I, I think that's a, that's a good number. Um, you know, it's our first time doing this. This is going to be the stream standard for our, for our buildings going forward. But uh, we, we're really excited about it. And the ones that are doing it are, you know, are, are really excited about it.
1: So uh, there were a couple of questions about the uh, UUI you're using. So you're using Code Labs for your um, UUI. So they're helping you to uh, really deploy all of these services. We
3: sure are. Yeah, they're uh, they've been great um, throughout the process. Um, you know, to me, you know, it was one of the hardest things. Uh, we we luckily had you know Thano Lambrinos and his team at Quadreal who had done this a little bit before. They they've taken some buildings probably not to this level yet, but uh, but they had uh, they really had a jump start on who who the consultants are you know uh, who do I talk to um, we we, did, we didn't we wouldn't have known without without their expertise so we were we were uh, we were lucky to have them at our side and and they they have uh, led us to some great consultants that have helped us so you know uh, they are our master code is our master systems integrator um, we've had other consultants along the way including our MEP engineers and, and engineers uh, from across the Across the world, really, to help us through the process.
1: That's great. Uh, this is a probably a little bit of a technical question, but um, someone was asking about the um, the space utilization um, sensors that you're using. So you are using, you know, image style sensors, or are no, you? No, the ones using the blue? ones we're
3: using are actually radar based um, right. micro motion sensors. So they're actually above the ceiling, and in, in some cases, they can be either above or below. Um, but they're they're micro motion sensors often used in play in in hospitals um i've been told um they they can actually um do fall detection and those kind of things but they're 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 sensitive enough and and this gets a little scary for some people uh they're anonymous so they don't know who 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 the person is they're not they're not uh um they're not video based and so but they do uh they can count people in space rather than just seeing motion and so um they're they're sensitive enough that when there's only one person in a room they can actually tell your breathing rate and your heart rate so uh very very uh exciting you know um material It scares some people when they when they know you could be monitored at that point but they are anonymous to help with 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 the with the security concerns
1: yeah no, that's great data all right well uh eric we'll we'll wrap up here we'll save some of these other uh questions for the panel discussion later. Uh, and I appreciate you uh, going through all that. It sounds very exciting. So thanks, Eric. Thank you. All right. So next up, uh, we've got Abe Stein with, uh, with Pointer. And uh, Abe is the VP of sales at Pointer, where he's responsible for leading the go-to-market and sales, uh, always looking for creative ways to improve our lives with smart technology. He is focused on bringing to life the buildings that we spend so much of our lives in. So uh, thanks, Abe sure thing hey folks uh very excited to be
4: here and and thanks to all the sponsors and partners for for making this happen uh my name is abe stein i am uh, the vp of sales with pointer the deep company and uh today i'll be speaking to a particularly impactful use case uh, that highlights some of the incredible work we've done with one of our clients but before we get there I'd like to to highlight some of the more exciting and pressing applications across a host of industries. Now, to to start there, uh, of course a topic that is top of mind for just about every company these days is ensuring a smooth and a, a safe return to work. This along with the shift towards hybrid working is transforming how companies envision what a smart workplace really looks like. You know, whether it's uh, leveraging indoor positioning systems to aid in in desk booking or optimizing a company's uh, various leases and assets. The next one we uh, uh, the next use case we see a lot about is with smart hospitals, uh, and this is something we'll be digging into a little bit deeper in just a moment with with our. Uh, with our use case that we'll be highlighting, but at the core of this is really leveraging indoor positioning systems to elevate the patient experience. Now, smart retailers across the globe are are looking to finally realize the the vision and unlock the value of what a true omni-channel experience is. Uh, In order to to help them realize that vision, at at Pointer we help these retailers create better shopping experiences through online fulfillment and improved in-store navigation really bridging the digital and physical world uh, for global uh, retailers one of the more interesting use cases we're seeing is with smart airports Uh, transit authorities across the globe are are rethinking their role in enabling the future of travel uh, and whether it's to fix the uber and ride sharing experiences or to help airlines improve revenue and operations, having a smart airport that is connected that provides granular, uh, detailed information on the flow of people uh, and different assets is is key to to bring that to life. Uh, And then lastly, and perhaps the most far-reaching application is is a smart city, which is really all about bringing these various use cases together through a unified experience in urban settings and in cities across the globe. You know, leveraging technologies like Bluetooth uh, and, you know, along with the the city's resource planning to ensure better, smarter cities, allocation of resources and uh, better living and quality of life for everybody. Um, All that said for today, we'll be taking a look at a, a smart hospital with UC Health and their patient app.
0: So it looks like we take a left here and then a right in three blocks.
5: Any idea where to park?
0: It's telling me we can park in this lot.
5: Oh, look, it says where we parked. Now we just have to walk through those doors.
6: I think it's on floor five.
5: It says take this elevator right there.
0: Well, now I know where we are. This office is this way.
5: Oh, look, it says welcome.
0: You know we've arrived?
5: Yes, and it's checked you in already.
0: <laughs> wow, that was easy.
3: You'll be able to come by yourself next time.
0: Oh, But then I won't get to spend some time with you.
3: I'll come with you for more support. How about that?
0: Deal. <laughs>
4: Now, now, I don't know about you folks, but uh, that's certainly an experience I have yet to have myself when visiting a hospital or a large healthcare center. Um, UC Health, like many hospitals, it's, it's a hard place to navigate, right? You've got uh, sprawling buildings, a number of different uh, garages, uh, offices, and uh, treatment centers that uh, you know, can, can vary from building to building and from visit to visit. Um, so you know they came to us with really a core problem which is that people keep getting lost in their hospitals um, and late and missed appointments you know across across the country cost hospitals over hundred and fifty billion dollars annually uh, but perhaps you're not perhaps certainly more importantly it leads to poor care for folks when they're at their absolute most vulnerable now what the question sort of becomes, what, what makes this such a hard problem to solve? Well, you know, as we all know, or if not, as we might imagine, GPS doesn't really work indoors, right? GPS is powered by satellite images uh, and, you know, it's, it's not a, a solution for indoor positioning or location and data services. Uh, and both building and maintaining reliable maps at scale in dynamic environments is incredibly difficult. The good thing, as we've seen with UC Health, and we're seeing with a number of other hospitals, is that hospitals and healthcare providers are more committed than ever uh, in delivering a frictionless patient patient experience. And the key to unlocking this is wayfinding powered by uh, BLE. Now, in the case of UC Health, they've leveraged Bluetooth beacons to enable location services, including digital wayfinding and geofence notifications. They've done this by and deployed it across uh, over two and a half million square feet and across uh, five buildings and seven parking garages. Now what, what this has really allowed them to do is enable the seamless patient journey from when somebody parks their car or arrives on campus, guiding them through those parking garages, giving them an optimal route both indoor and outdoor and back indoors again to uh, to the medical provider on campus. This creates exceptional journeys that are tailored to each specific individual and unlocks uh, solutions ranging from accessibility to uh, better optimizing you know on campus and on site resources. And you know, one year in, both uh, both UC Health and their patients have been responding tremendously to this new application. Which has guided over 46,000 patient journeys across two and a half million square feet and 60 floors, and this is something that can be done at scale. And they've been able to both deploy with ease in only a 14-day deployment, uh, and they've been able to maintain easily uh, over the course of a year. Uh, and in doing this, you know, we partnered with them to deploy 2,000 Bluetooth-enabled devices across their campus.
1: And uh, with that, Donnie, back on over to you. Yeah, thanks, Abe. Um, that is uh, definitely needed technology in the healthcare environment. You know, the way the hospitals are growing, they, they you know, add on, build another building, and, um, you know, it's not always the easiest thing to navigate for the, the patients and people that are there. So, um, you know, really giving them that flow from the time they enter the site to uh, exactly where they're trying to get to. That's... A, very uh, very valuable service Um, so where do you see that we're headed with location services and smart buildings uh, beyond healthcare
4: sure no it's a great question so um, a lot of really exciting applications for for indoor location services uh, particularly as you you begin to merge that with uh, AR solutions and and other emerging technologies that that we're seeing come online Uh, you know for instance the concept of the digital twin in manufacturing has been, you know, around for quite some time, and has certainly been a buzzword in, in industrial use cases. What we get really excited about is the concept of digital twins for buildings, right? So, it really unlocking uh, remote collaboration for folks from one building to the next, whether it's you know folks who are on campus and on the same you know global campus, but it has maybe twenty buildings and it's hard to navigate, you know. A, ease of being able to find a room, book it, and, you know, go out your day uninterrupted to being able to collaborate effectively with somebody who's on a different continent. But because of, you know, granular indoor location services, they are able to, you know, operate as if they're in the same physical space.
1: Yeah, that's great. Well, Abe, I uh, thank you uh, for being with us, and we'll definitely have some more questions on the panel.
4: Thank you, Donnie.
1: All right, thank you. All right, uh, next we have um, Alex Grace uh, with Clockworks. Um, Alex is a subject matter expert in smart building technology, big data analytics, and their impacts on building and facility operations. He currently leads the go-to-market strategy execution at Clockwork Analytics, a global
7: building analytics platform. Alex, welcome. Thanks so much, Donnie, appreciate it. Uh, very good. So. I believe I'll start here with just a quick introduction um, to Clockworks Analytics, for those that don't know. The company's been around since 2010, roughly, and got its start out of the MIT Building Science program, so all founders completing PhDs there. And from those early days, first monitoring MIT buildings to today, the platform is currently connected that's data streaming every five minutes to over 400 million square feet over 2,400 facilities in 30 countries and uh, the statistic that we're particularly proud of across that platform is that 30,000 tasks have been completed within Clockworks. A task is a one-to-one relationship with a work order, so that means 30,000 actions have been completed to save energy, to improve indoor air quality, and to extend the lifespan and health of equipment. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of discussion about the fact that technology is great, but if people don't act and if it's not built into a workflow, then the results won't be there. And um, across that portfolio, you know, that statistic means a lot to us for obvious reasons. So I had sort of a a minute to introduce clockworks, and those are some things I wanted to share there. And then we can get into the presentation today on smart building operations and my contribution here. So, when we talk about smart building operations, the reason the reason we thought it'd be interesting to talk about this is that there's a, a lot of really interesting things when it comes to new construction and designing smart facilities. And we also know that 80% of the carbon over time is in the operation of the building, not in the new construction. And sometimes operations gets left out uh, of, of the equation. And we know that there's a tremendous amount of uh, how much it matters when it comes to building occupant health how much it matters uh, when it comes to the spaces that we want to perform the way they were designed. So I'm gonna talk about unlocking building data to improve energy consumption, to improve maintenance and comfort of spaces, and we'll get into that now. So um, let's talk just quickly about the challenge. You know, why why is this a topic that people care about? Um, According to the EPA, 30% of energy in buildings is wasted with inefficiency. According to the Center for the Built Environment, that's out of uh, UC Berkeley, 40% of workers are dissatisfied with comfort in their space. Now today, uh, indoor air quality being such a big topic, that's taken on a whole new dimension. Not just concerns around comfort, but concerns around health. And this last statistics here is incredibly powerful for those that have financial decision making and are thinking about, uh, certainly that are are managing uh, facilities over 80% of equipment fails for non age related reasons, meaning before its end of life. So that's also an important one to address that if we can keep equipment performing well, we know there's a major capital benefit when it comes to equipment uh, longevity. So those are some of the challenges that we're talking about here with fault section diagnostics and smart buildings operation. Um, so moving on to from the challenge really to the opportunity with some third party data here. So two really powerful studies I want to point to in this context, talk about energy and operational savings on the left is a study from the smart energy analytics campaign run out of Lawrence Berkeley national labs, an incredibly powerful program that if you have not checked out and it's of interest, I highly encourage you to, you can Google smart energy analytics campaign it will come right up. And the results of that campaign were very powerful analyzing over 500 million square feet of property. That has gone through fault detection and diagnostics, um, assisted monitoring-based commissioning type processes, the results were really substantial. Savings were found to be 6% year one, climbing all the way to 27% year five. So it came up interestingly before, talking about, um, you know, once you squeeze the energy out, what happens over time? So this study was really powerful to show that the savings actually continues, particularly when you have that understanding of avoided cost that buildings will waste more energy over time. The nature of mechanical equipment is that it degrades. And then another study here on the right that's really powerful from Pacific Northwest National Labs talking about operational savings. So we talk about energy a lot and that's what's focused on the left. On the right, we're talking about the operational savings side um, that's possible from a fault detection and diagnostics driven program. So elimination of breakdowns, reductions in downtime, reductions in maintenance expenditure, and increase in production, so in productivity, how uh, and that can be defined in different ways. So really powerful statistics there coming out of PNNL as well. So we talked about the challenge, we talked about the opportunity, now let's get into uh, what it really is. So I wanna do a little bit of level setting here, a little bit of education around what fault detection and diagnostics is. It's a term that probably a lot of the audience is familiar with. But I believe there's still quite a bit of confusion. And I want to talk about really the distinction between building automation alarms, fault detection, and fault detection and diagnostics. So, on that first part of the funnel there at the top, talking about BMS alarms, you've got raw data, if then statement, if this temperature is exceeded by this many degrees, trigger alarm, right? So, in the example here on the right, my AHU has a discharge, has a high discharge air temperature right now. That's what alarm will tell us. When we get to fault detection, we add uh, some the concept of trending, and we'll get a little more information like this is a big you and the issue has been occurring for a couple of days. When we talk about fault detection and diagnostics, we're talking about root cause analysis, and there's more data that's required there, which is how the system is actually performed, aka its sequence of operations, becomes an important parameter here as well as the engineering configuration of that equipment, of that system. So the example here on the right, the chilled water valve is stuck closed. This is impacting all perimeter zones on the third floor. I'll add, here's how much it's costing, here's how important this issue is from a maintenance and a comfort perspective, therefore, how should I prioritize it relative to the hundred other things that are happening in any complex facility with the building automation system. So. Quick description of those differences. I'm gonna hit that again in a slightly different way here. Um, Talking about alarms from the BAS. I mentioned there's less data involved there, you know, to trigger, for example, a high discharge air temp. And then we have to go through an investigation step. So now I wanna talk about the added element of what do we do with this information when it comes to actually solving problems on the ground. And we have to ask ourselves, when did this issue start? How severe is it? What other issues are present? What is the root cause? How do I go fix it? So there's a whole investigation step here on that alarm to be able to create an action. When we add fault detection to the equation, again, we're now taking more data into account. And now we've triggered a number of different faults on this piece of equipment, but they still appear in a laundry list, if you will. They still appear in sort of an advanced alarm type scenario. So now in addition to my high discharge air temp in this example, I've added a fault on a sensor, and I've added the fact that we're not utilizing free cooling uh, using outdoor air when we could be on this economy So I've sort of checked the box around how did, about when did the issue start and how severe is it? But I still need to do root cause analysis to really figure out what I need to do to fix the problem. Okay, moving on to diagnostics. Adding that second D to the equation. Now we've gotten to that root cause. Those faults have been strung together into one analysis, so I'm not looking at a laundry list, I'm getting to the root cause of the problem to fix multiple issues at the same time, and I can really spend less time troubleshooting, more time fixing. So that's the really important thing to keep in mind, particularly if you're in the facilities world and you're looking at these types of technologies, do you get to that root cause, can you get right to the fix, or you need to do a lot of troubleshooting to get there? Those are important things to keep in mind. We have a large white paper about this, written in collaboration with james dice from uh, nexus labs and and that's really powerful piece that's on our website clockworksanalytics.com feel free to also send me a message or contact us to the website if you have trouble finding it really goes into some detail here that should be quite useful as you're doing technology evaluations in this area of smart building operations Uh, very good just two more things to cover here i want to talk about some other use cases so Um, Gary earlier talked about the energy savings piece around uh, fault detection diagnostics at scale and the push into maintenance. And I believe there are some questions there that hopefully I can answer in the Q&A that came up a little bit earlier on some technical pieces there. Um, Maintenance is really important. And some other use cases I want to talk about that are really tied to fault detection. So when we're talking about FDD, emphasis on that second D diagnostics, We're talking about not just identifying energy measures, but being able to fundamentally figure out where problems are occurring across equipment. And the really important second part of that is should you care. And one of the key ways that we care today is what is the impact on occupant health? Do you have the ability to immediately pick up on where the ventilation issues are and where the humidity issues are in your spaces? So a question I often ask building owners as you're looking at IAQ strategies First and foremost, do you know where all your stuck outdoor air dampers are across your portfolio? If that question can't be answered, that's really square one. Um, again, the nature of mechanical equipment is that it will degrade. It's not a question of if the damper will stick. It's a question of when. So do we have tools and technology in place to be able to alert us to, that, to those facts and make sure that we're addressing it in a timely manner in an appropriate way? And then in addition to air quality, I want to bring up one other uh, case study here, which is a university, 53 buildings, three years of FDD monitoring over $1.3 million saved and 100000 hundred thousand on the table to be saved with open tasks. And this is an example of the type of executive dashboarding that can uh, that can be involved in an FDD program. So in this case, monitoring 13,000 pieces of equipment tracking savings over time, the carbon tracking and the carbon accounting associated here, as far as ESG initiatives go is, is obviously an important and increasingly important component as well as being able to track, you know, how many tasks, not only do we have completed, but what is open, what are we working on right now, particularly for organizations that rely on a lot of different vendors across their portfolios. This becomes a really powerful tool for vendor management as well. You know, how do you make sure that you're maximizing your service agreements that when a technician shows up on site, that they're doing what is most worth their time and has the biggest impact to your facility, rather than just running through a checklist, which is frankly the way that uh, service has been performed as part of service agreements in the same way for three decades. We have technology now to use a data driven approach. And you know, that's an important part of the strategy as well. So. I believe that's my time here, and I'll open it up. Uh, I think we have some questions. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thanks, Alex. Um, we um, we we do have some questions, and we're going to jump into them in the uh, panel discussion. And so uh, we will uh, we will hit you up for those uh, at that time. I think we're going to jump into a, a video from uh, Spot On Networks. Thanks, Alex. Thanks. All right, thanks. We want to welcome Dick. Uh, Dick Sherwin has been involved in wireless communications and radio frequency transmission for the past 30 years. He founded and funded Spot On Networks, a provider of wireless telecommunications for the multifamily residential and multi-tenant commercial building industry. Thanks,
6: Dick. Donnie, thank you. Um, and Chuck, thank you and Sarah for allowing us to participate in this boot camp. Um, As Donnie mentioned, our specialty is wireless connectivity in buildings. We provide a uh, network as a service within a multi-tenant building that offers a number of different services to residents, to staff, and to building owners and managers. We've been in the business of wireless connectivity um, in multi-tenant buildings for more than 15 years, long before it was fashionable. We hold a couple of patents with regard to wireless network security. And specialty design. We offer three basic services which are customizable by building uh, a building wide Wi Fi uh, network as a service for high speed data, smartphone voice services, and building management services. Uh, we offer a hybrid distributed antenna system uh, to augment cellular telephone service in LEED certified buildings where cellular service is either non existent or extremely poor. And we offer an emergency responder radio communications enhancement service uh, in which um, uh, the normal authorities having jurisdiction mandate that there be some um, enhancement system in a building. Our service is the mechanism that connects devices to platforms for data collection and control in a typical building management system. For businesses, energy costs make up some one third of budgets, and energy production results in up to 20% of the nation's annual greenhouse gas emissions, according to a report by Energy Star. These are very good reasons to make buildings smarter. Internet of Things devices, IoT devices, uh, needed to monitor and control energy related devices, are required to use very low power to reduce the need for battery change. And so the protocols like LoRaWAN, Z-Wave, Zigbee, even BLE, um, offer that low power connectivity, and because of that have low capacity and low data speeds, which is perfect for many IoT devices. By deploying Wi-Fi and these other low power protocol transmission mechanisms, wiring costs to make a building smart are reduced and devices can be added as necessary, offering flexibility,
5: I'm sorry, (sighs) offering flexibility in buildings.
6: Any building network requires management. Data security and continuous uninterrupted connectivity are mission critical to ensure proper functioning of all services. Separate virtual networks, called virtual local area networks, which are secured from each other, are targeted to provide connectivity to specific individual applications. And the security from one to the other is extremely important and is part of the network
5: as a service that we offer.
6: Today, Wi-Fi is most often deployed to support a bunch of residential services as well as critical IoT use cases, whereas low-power protocols such as LoRaWAN, ZigBee, BLE, Z-Wave are used to connect sensors and other low-power devices. When used in tandem, the two technologies, both the Wi-Fi and the low-power protocols, Support a vast array of IoT use cases in the verticals that you see on the chart Um, smart buildings, smart hospitality, smart cities, and so forth. If you think of a smart building as a tree, the roots and main trunk of the tree are a set of fiber or wire riser cables that deliver data to and from the extremities of the tree. The main horizontal branches are a set of wires. Connecting the trunk or riser to the endpoints of the branches, in our case, access points, that deliver data in both directions from user devices or sensors to, to applications in the cloud or to on site servers. One network is therefore capable of providing all of the resident tenant required services, including video streaming high speed internet access, voice and text service on smartphones, as well as building owner manager requirement connectivity to collect data and control certain devices to make the building more efficient. I've put up a couple of use cases in which we have implemented networks to give you an idea of The kinds of things that building owners, residential building owners in this case, are doing. These four use cases typify the connectivity we are asked to provide in a multi tenant building. In all of these use cases, we provide high speed wireless data access in amenity areas and in apartments, either on a fee or free basis. In each of the use cases seen on this chart, there are additional operations added. In the San Francisco case, we provide connectivity to EV charging stations on garage levels, as well as Wi Fi calling on those levels in which there is no cell service. The EV charging stations use Wi Fi to connect to their main servers, as well as smartphones in the building, in the garage levels, use Wi Fi to provide voice and text services access to wi-fi enabled thermostats for residents and the concierge is also available and lastly the fitness equipment in the fitness center um, connects to the internet through our network in new york city in the two cases you see on the chart we provide connectivity for intercoms security cameras and elevator control systems in the hotel project we provide the connectivity. For check-in kiosks and the luggage robots, and lastly, in the Washington D.C. Uh, section, uh, we pretty much uh, uh, mimic what we've done in the New York City area by providing thermostat control and uh, all of the uh, data data functioning uh, for amenity area Wi-Fi and voice calling on smartphones. In the next use case, it's a little more specific. It's a a case study of a 500 unit high rise uh, in Jersey City, which has 160,000 square feet of amenity area and retail space in addition to the living areas. Um, We partnered with Logical Buildings, a smart building software and solutions company that helped make buildings more energy efficient. With a $27,000 effectively annual energy savings and which represents about 10% savings on the operation and a revenue share at 30% penetration for subscription internet access. As you can see from the chart, the network fees and platform fees were more than offset by cost savings and revenue received.
5: A managed network is more
6: than just installing access points or smart hubs. The network needs to be tested periodically because the nature of radio frequency is that it changes all the time. Constant monitoring assures connectivity. Analyzing the metrics of the network ensures that appropriate capacity is available for all the users, that is the residents, staff, and of course the building management uh, data con- data communication capabilities ensuring quality of service for all users keeps tenants satisfied and makes the building operations much more efficient donny it's all yours
1: all right thanks dick um so you know we've seen this trend uh lately that um you know the managed wi-fi and uh multi uh multifamily market is uh is really starting to trend up again what what do you think is is causing that
6: um certainly the work from home um situation uh, as a result of the pandemic has added the need for building owners to recognize the need for continuous data communication throughout the building one of the things that that we're seeing is that especially in newer buildings that are LEED certified, the need for voice uh, cap- voice and text capability for smartphones is really critical. And cellular, cellular services do not penetrate these buildings because of their LEED certification, that is low-E glass and the concrete structure of the building. Right. So Wi-Fi throughout the building, a building-wide Wi-Fi service really gives the building owner the capability to provide cell service in the building without having to make an extensive uh and expensive investment
1: great well thank you well i think we're going to invite our uh panel to join us and we'll get into some additional questions All right. Great. Thanks, guys. Um, Alex, I know we had some questions for you that we didn't get to. So let me let me jump right into that. Um, uh, One person asked, what are some of the key criteria when assessing an FDD solution or vendor?
7: Uh, Great question. So I, I think that the presentation I gave around that differentiation between alarms, fault detection and fault detection diagnostics is really critical. Um, frankly, most of what I see in the market is in that first category of fault detection, but not fault detection and diagnostics. So the question is, you know, do you want to build an in-house team to manage the troubleshooting component or do you want a tool that can get you to the root cause so that you can spend less time troubleshooting, more time fixing? I think that's a really critical component.
1: Um, and then um, someone else had asked. Um Um, How does what you provide tie in or supplement BAS, Siemens, or Johnson Control? So basically, how do you tie in or supplement to a normal building automation system?
7: Sure. So it really sits on top. No conflict there. Um, It's about consolidating data, whether you have one system or we have clients that have 12 different building automation platforms and they're pulling data into one place. Um, I see Gary shaking his head probably more than that, actually, in Gary's case. Um, So... Yeah, the, you know, the building automation will produce alarms, building automation system. And you want those alarms to live within your building automation system. When something has just exploded, you want to know about it now and you want that control to be local. Um, when it comes to investigation and analysis and being able to produce uniform KPIs across, your, across many systems, that you want to live at the, the fault detection diagnostics level, which should be cloud-based.
1: Great. Thank you. Um, and then I'll, I'll open this up to uh, to everyone. But uh, you know, something that we um, see routinely in new construction is um, the the market is really interested and in, in ready for smart buildings, but they don't necessarily have a lot of extra budget. And so a lot of times, what we will hear is, we we want to do everything that we can in this uh, in this new build to be ready for smart building, or you know, to implement some of the low hanging fruit. For smart building but they also don't want to paint themselves in a corner and not be able to deploy new technology as it comes out so maybe i'll start with eric since he's uh building uh, new uh new buildings now so um what what would be your answer for that of you know how, how would you want to modify um the approach for building a new building to say Let, let's make sure we get as much bang for uh, bang for our buck and be as smart as we can
3: yeah, my my argument, um, whether it be, you know, tenants we're talking about or 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 developer partners and new buildings is that we can't afford not to do this. Um, uh, when you look at when you look at the payback for, for these things and we're just getting, you know, there's there's a lot of it that's that's, um, you know, evaluations not based on a lot of history because there's not not this hasn't been done a lot to this level. But we're seeing, you know, uh, two to three dollars initial cost. Um, per square foot in an office building. Um, and but returns in, in the range, you know, in, in pure energy of 40 to 60 cents a square foot per year. Um, that's hard, you know, that's just energy. That doesn't count, start looking at operational cost improvements. And so uh that's that that data came from from QuadReal and their their work. They're, they actually have built out a very smart space for themselves and their headquarters in Vancouver. Um, obviously regionally, those things are going to be affected. Um, you know, um, we don't, we don't use heaters here, although today we need them. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's, there's going to be regional differences, but there, there, the payback is, is really easy when you look at the numbers, the ROI is, is, is there. Um, we, we think it's going to pay off even bigger when it comes to operational savings. And all the things that make it easier to to run the building. From our standpoint, um, as as a as a real estate company, just the knowledge of how our buildings are used and 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 understand, you know, all the operational savings, all the potential to uh, reduce loads on equipment and do fault diagnostics. Um, you know, all the IA uh, um, concepts that we're we're talking about in the future. Um, that's all. That's all. Uh, that's exciting i mean that's all i can say i it, it sells itself if you look at the numbers
1: yeah so so you know basically what i hear you saying is you you've, you've got to consider the life cycle that if you know you you make pay a couple of dollars up front but it, it's a no-brainer when you consider the uh the future savings um,
5: yeah
3: I, I think there's a there's a lot of areas i mean i, I think even even you know we're, we're not a a long-term holder of most of our real estate and so you start looking at you know um you know the exit um, of a building and and how you exit and and if I can tell you know a buyer um, in in the market exactly every piece of equipment and every time they were maintained and every time they had a fault um, and and really give them great information about the building potentially you know pass on the digital twin um, to me that's all value that's gonna it's gonna pay back at, at exit.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. That's value in the building. So basically, you're able to show them the ROI annually, and you don't have to put up the upfront cost. I've already made that investment for you. So that's uh, you know, that that will really be what tips the market when that starts to influence those building purchases. Um, Gary, uh, I, I know that uh, this has been a program that has been implemented for a, a while. Are you seeing this as being something that um, you know, has to continually be justified um, for what that first cost adds to the project? Or at this point, is it just kind of routine and, and going into what you're doing?
2: Yeah, honestly, I don't find a lot of pushback on the first cost on the construction side, because honestly, the implementation cost for most of this is is a drop in the bucket on a capital projects. It's harder to get make it happen on an operational, but we've still been successful. We've added quite a few of our medical centers through through operational budget, so they still see the value, but I honestly see a lot of value in doing it right up front because you, like our team, uses it pretty extensively within our commissioning program. Um, Because commissioning, is just another tool that they can use, and then you turn it right over to the operators. You can give the operators peace of mind that they're actually getting turned over a building that is well functioning, um, as opposed to kind of a mystery that here's a commissioning report says everything works, but. It was really just, it worked at that time when they did the test, but who knows what happened after.
1: So was your organization already a, a data-driven organization, and so this just kind of was something that flows naturally?
2: I think we have some pretty smart folks up that drive a lot of our um, our design standards that see the value in the data. And so... Um, they were able to push it into our design standards and that kind of drove things down through the organization. Like I said, we are decentralized, but there's one thing we do have centralized is we have a very, um, we have a very strong design standard for our capital program. So everybody, we have partners that build them, but they have to build those buildings, all those hospitals, according to our design standards. So we have, and then we have a team that's out there advising and enforcing those design standards. So we, we put this right into it. And I think, we were able to then do the analysis and show, cause we are having problems. We had these buildings that might've been a, a lead gold facility, but then it, it didn't actually, its energy use was actually a lot higher. So it looked great on paper and everything looked good, but then reality a couple of years later, it wasn't performing as well as some of our older facilities. So we really tightened up our commissioning program. And I think the data has really helped with that
1: absolutely you need that root cause analysis that alex was talking about to say okay i know my building's capable of being high performing but it's not what, it, where, and where,
2: it's where independent call- third-party data it's it's not the it, you're not trusting the word of the commissioning agent or word of somebody else you this is an independent system that is monitoring your your system and so there's no it's uh we kind of we, we treat it like it's the uh check engine light on your car. You know, you wouldn't drive off the lot with a new car and have all the check engine lights on. So we we use in our case we use Clockworks and some of our other tools like that. So that's that's kind of the you've got to you've got to show us you've got a clean clean bill of health before this building uh can get turned over.
1: That's great. Um so we have got another uh question to uh to the panel here. Um says so a good technical solution may not be used as intended due to a lack of education or training. What has worked for you to successfully hand over a solution to building operations?
2: I'll jump in on that. So, one we did when picking a solution, there are lots of different FDD tools out there. Uh, we picked Clockworks because it was not as individually it has to be configured, but it wasn't like we had to go out there and write the rules. Um, so, for other applications, there's a tools might be better, but for us, the fact that it was a, a really good, easy user uh, user interface, we got a lot of great support from the team. Um, we really try to treat the Clockworks team as a, an extension of our facility operators. Um, and I think where they see it that way, and they have that back and forth interaction on the platform when they have questions, because it gets turned over. It, there's, it's never perfect, but it requires that back and forth, and then it really ends up being valuable. And that then becomes useful down the line like five years later you've you've dialed the system in so the next person that comes over they've got the benefit of that um, as opposed to that person retires and they leave with all that knowledge um, but it, it does take a constant i'm constantly looking at the adoption i'm trying to monitor see how folks are doing reaching out really trying to make sure that they're we're being proactive and getting them the training um, i try to build a lot of kind of governance and support in a cohesive group and a work group across the, uh, across the nation, but it's a, it is, it is a challenge, but, um, I think we've, we've, we've had success in constantly trying to improve on it.
1: Great. Um, you know, Abe, with your, um, solutions with indoor wayfinding, it's, you know, it's kind of the opposite of that. You don't get the luxury of training the end users because the end users are visitors. So how, how do you work with the solutions to, you know, commission them and make sure that they're working and, you know, kind of, a an easy to use interface, so that you know people that do, you know, set up a visit with a doctor um, know how to get that application and get to where they're going without a lot of training.
4: Yeah, no, that's that's a great um, point, and and it does certainly make our our solution unique in that you know at our core what we often you know are delivering is simply you know an SDK, right, and the data and, and intelligence that that injects into uh, the the end user application. So. Really the way we, we go about that and the way we think about it is partnering very closely with the team uh, responsible uh, for delivering that application. With, in certain industries, it is internal. They've got their own IT department maintaining an application. Uh, in other cases, it's working with uh, third parties who are either developing a new application, and user application, uh, or in, in many cases, for us, working closely with our partners. So we partner very closely with some of the leading hardware providers, with some of the leading app development companies, and, and some of the leading uh, SIs across the world. Um, and so really partnering with them to develop a, a standard for which uh, to deliver these end user experiences. Um, and so that's really where, where we see the most success is when we can partner, you know, work with our partners to deliver a repeatable and scalable solution so that it's it's you know a, a hardened methodology um and user experience for
1: all their clients so uh dick as uh, someone that's providing that wireless environment is the um indoor location services something that your group gets
6: involved in um actually we do um we've been using boe for beacon mm-hmm. uh but but in reality it's out of our wheelhouse we only provide the connectivity it's another company like a logical buildings that provides the platform and and the way in which the system operates. Yeah so you give them the backbone and they, they deploy the services on it. Exactly.
1: Right. Great. Um Alex uh how about in the area of um you know building analytics does the location of people uh, kind of play into any of the uh, building analytics that you're producing, whether it come from, you know, Bluetooth data or occupancy sensors or, you know, really any, anything else that's indicating where people are active in the building.
7: Yeah. Interesting question. Occupancy is underappreciated how much complexity there actually is. There are so many different ways to determine that a space is occupied and at what level. Uh, within building automation itself. And when you start adding other wayfinding and other types of uh, sensor data to the equation, that matters as well. Now, you know, I I would say that that information needs to be tied into BMS if it's third-party sensors or different types of creative approaches, whether it's Wi-Fi signals or you name it, because fundamentally you're trying to control. So absolutely, from a fault detection diagnostics perspective, you want to capture that data, whether it's third-party or not. But I, I also, frankly, do question having that data as a silo. You know that needs to be involved in a control strategy.
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, and then uh, someone else had asked um, for multi-tenant buildings or for hospitals: Are clients willing to pay annually uh, on a subscription basis for technology?
7: Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, absolutely. I think. In a lot of ways, our industry is a bit of a technology laggard sometimes, right? I mean, there's not many. I don't know how many, how much software we can point to today that is not a subscription-based thing in our personal lives, uh in our work lives. You know, I mean, it's Office 365, it's Salesforce, it's you name it. So uh, this isn't different. And sometimes procurement needs a reminder of that. Uh, but absolutely, it is now the norm. I think that's a, a conversation that has changed dramatically in the last five years.
2: We haven't really had too many issues from a hospital standpoint. And honestly, one area where you do still see it pretty old is building management systems. Most building management systems are not on subscription. Uh, I don't know if any of ours are. So they're constantly out of date and then they uh, come in and do an upgrade and they've got to go find the money to do that upgrade. And then they separately need to have a service contract. So just reminded, yeah, it's a subscription, but part of that subscription comes with the service. You're paying for the service, not just the platform, but the access to the support, the training, the education. So I really haven't had much pushback. Occasionally there's been, but I can usually – it's not too hard an argument to make. That's a great point.
7: And and one thing I'll just quickly add to that uh, that I think is important to keep in mind is that when you buy software and install it locally, you're now stuck with that piece of software for a long time. When you have a subscription, if you're not getting value, you turn it off and make sure that the terms of your agreement allow for
0: that. Absolutely. Looks like we've uh, ran out of time here. You did. All right. Thank you, Don. Great discussion. I appreciate it. Thanks to all the panelists and and just all your valuable contributions uh, during today's session. You guys, uh, you nailed it. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the case study component that wraps up these uh, series is just so critical. And so you did just a, a great job. I want to uh, tell our live audience and those watching on the recording as well, be sure to go to realcom.com to register for our real estate data analytics webinar series, starting just one week from today on February the 10th. And where we'll begin with powering the enterprise. That's developing a data strategy. And these series go, typically go strategies, fundamentals, a uh, lot of uh, data and, and tell you what to do, what you can do, and then case studies. And we'll follow that pattern again in this series. So thanks again. wish everyone a great day. And thank you to all of our sponsors and, and for all the participants. So uh, take care, everybody, and be safe. See ya. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.